Now we come to a subject which is understood by extremely few Christians. And I'm convinced that this is why we do not have the vitality today of the first century. And so there is no more important truth than you will ever learn than what we're going to be talking about today and tomorrow. Because we're going to be talking about our identification with Christ, which is the heart and center of all that Christ applies to you, which he accomplished on the cross. It's the way that God gives you the merits of what Christ did for you on the cross. God has one great common denominator of everything he wants to give you, Jesus Christ. And so it is so simple that people really stumble over it. And you need to be in prayer that the Holy Spirit will enlighten you to this mystery, which is a real fact, though mysterious. God in his grace, through what Christ did on the cross for us, has infinite wealth that he wants to give every believer at the moment that he believes, and it becomes his eternal possession. And these things revolve around having God's own righteousness, being a co-heir with Christ, having authority, uh, authority which is staggering in its power, and so on. God wanted us to have the, be clothed with Christ's righteousness. God wanted us to be so acceptable in His sight that He could accept us unconditionally at the moment that we believe so that we're no longer on trial, so that we know that we're whole in without blame before him, and so that he can love us with the same love he has for Christ. And so as God sought to find a way to do this, God arrived upon the perfect plan, and that is, Jesus Christ in himself is everything that an infinite God could wish to give man. And so God took the, the infinite Christ and he has taken the believer at the moment of salvation and put him into union with the person of Christ so that all that Christ is became, becomes true of you from that moment on. So that's God's great common denominator and that's in brief what it means to be identified with Christ. It is being so totally identified with Christ that everything he is becomes true of you, absolutely, from that moment on. Now, Jesus predicted this union which would be affected in John chapter 14. So if you'll turn there, please. John chapter 14. Verse 12, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. Now the word believe here is in the present tense, which means the one who keeps on believing, or the one who has a habit of a moment-by-moment -moment faith is the idea. And he says, the very works that I have done shall he do also. Now this verse is so staggering in its promise that if you read the average commentary on this verse or the average theology on this verse, you'll find that men stagger in unbelief at it and explain it away. In fact, I don't believe I've read but one commentary on this verse which really got the point. And the point is just what it says. In other words, this verse, surprisingly enough, means exactly what it says. But there, there are theologians who apparently just can't believe what God says in simple fact. And so they explain it away. But this verse is saying, the things that Christ did, you will do. And the greater works of Christ have to do with the fantastic things that he did mostly in the spiritual realm. I want to point out something here before we go on, because the minute you start talking about the, the works of Christ, and the fact that we would do those greater works, usually a person's mind jumps to certain things that Christ did in the Gospels. Like, for instance, what do you think about when you think of the works of Christ? Raising Lazarus physically from the dead? Well, what else? What are some other things? Walking on the water? What else? Healing the blind man physically? All right, I thought that's what you'd say, and you're wrong. Those are the most insignificant things that Christ did, and they took the least amount of power. But you know, most people would go over hill and dale to see somebody who's a, uh, supposed to be a divine healer. And uh, they'll travel land and sea to see some, uh, some uh, uh, physical phenomena because everybody wants a carnival. And we've got a lot of spiritual charlatans running around capitalizing on the flesh. But those aren't the greatest works that Christ did. The Bible tells us that the greatest thing God has ever done was to save a soul from spiritual death. And every time you lead a person to Christ, you are witnessing the greatest miracle that this earth or the universe has ever seen. When it talks about creation in the Bible, it says it was finger work for God. But when it talks about providing salvation in Isaiah chapter 53, it says the mighty right arm of God was bared to do it. And it's showing that it's a difference between finger work and the, the whole right arm of God to save. And the greatest thing that God has ever done is to deliver people from spiritual bondage and bring them into spiritual life 
and then to progressively, day by day, bring that person into a conformity to the image of Christ. There's never been anything that has been done that is greater than that. And yet we're always looking for the lesser works. Now they're important, and I'm not minimizing those things, and I think tomorrow you're going to see that I believe that if God, if it were in God's plan for me to raise a person physically from the dead, I believe I could do it. And I'm not saying that that's without, without the realm of possibility. Especially in these last days. But what I want you to know is that is a much more insignificant miracle than the time that I lead a person to Christ. So let's get things in right perspective. Every time you introduce a person to Christ, you're witnessing the greatest miracle of the universe. And so when it talks about us doing those greater works and being empowered to do the same things that Christ did, it's primarily talking about the miracles of the spiritual realm, although the physical realm is included within the plan of God. Now... When it says greater works, it doesn't mean greater in quality. It means greater in quantity. When Jesus Christ was here on earth, here was a man who was completely indwelt and walking by faith so that he was filled with all the Spirit's power. So when Christ was on earth, there was only one man who was filled with the Spirit. And look what he did. Now, there are greater works, and he's promising that. He said, there's something going to happen in the future which will make greater works because, why? There are going to be all kinds of people filled with the Spirit. And there wasn't then, just one. But he says, you're going to do the same kind of works that I did, and greater because there are going to be so many of you who have the Spirit. And so he begins to promise the tremendous impact of the Spirit invading a human life on the basis of the resurrection, which he would take part in. All right, now he says, and whatever you ask in my name, now he begins to set forth the authority of the believer, the staggering authority of the believer, which we will talk about in much detail tomorrow. And this is something that Satan will try to keep you from understanding and ever appropriating and so tomorrow, you can look for all kinds of crazy things to go on in your minds. You think I'm kidding? Just wait till tomorrow. I remember the first time I taught this. <laughs> I've never been through such a situation in my life. Because Satan will do anything to keep a believer from, from uh, finding out about the authority that he has. But he says, and whatever you ask in my name, and the name of Christ represents the authority of the power of the universe. That will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now this is the evidence of true faith. It's not the cause it's the result, though. Don't ever get the cart before the horse. And we'll have a lot more to say about that next week.
As a result of knowing about God's love, you respond in trusting him, and what the world will see is that you love Christ, and by the Holy Spirit you keep his commandments. That evidence is that you're a true, true believer. So there will be that about your life, but it's not the cause of God accepting you, it's the results. So he goes on to say, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, here Christ predicts that there's going to be a change in relationship to the Holy Spirit, a part of every believer. The Holy Spirit abided alongside of the Word with the Old Testament believer, but it was not a direct vital empowering like is now possible and he predicts he says in the future he will be in you which is predicting the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the, the doctrine of the indwelling of the Spirit is that he takes up permanent residence in the heart of every person at the moment of salvation we'll get to that when we get farther down the list of things that happen at the moment of salvation but then he says I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me, because I live, you shall live also. Because Christ would be raised from the dead, because he would be in a resurrection life, he says we would live also. And the fact that you live spiritually today is evidence that Christ is alive. And the reason we have spiritual life today is because we're in union with the resurrected Christ and his life has become our life. The life that you're living as a Christian now is the, none other than the resurrection life of Christ. It's a derived life from him. Now, how would this be possible? For the first time, he sets forth seven of the most sublime words ever uttered. And it's a prediction talking about what would be possible after the cross and his resurrection and ascension to the Father. In that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, and, here are the seven sublime words, you in me, and I in you. You in me is a reference to one of infinity's masterpieces. It is the fact that the believer would be put into Christ and that we would be so totally identified with him that everything that is true of Jesus Christ would become true of us. And the last part, and you and me, and I in you, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Christ is in us through the Holy Spirit's presence in us. Now, he's predicting something that was not true then, but would be true later. And so, I want us to see when this took place. Turn to Acts, 
chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to talk about the real baptism today. I remember as a young believer, I just learned about this, and I was over by invitation of a friend with whom I worked to speak at his house to his sister about Christ. He had just accepted Christ with me at the office, and uh, I didn't know it, but she was a member of a very strong denomination. And so I was sharing with her the fact that I'd been baptized with water three times, and it never took. And then later I accepted Christ, and it changed my life. And I was, uh, she said, well, do you believe baptism saves? And I said, yes. Which one? She said, there's only one. And I said, you're wrong. There's seven, seven different baptisms in the Scripture. So I began to show her these things, and I showed her there's only one that saves because it's a part of the saving work of Christ, and it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So she called up a visiting theologian from that particular denomination that happened to be in town, and uh, I began to hit him with this. He didn't have any answer, because the Scripture's very clear if you just read it. So it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that John the Baptist predicted, Matthew 3.11. And Jesus says it's future to his uh, ascension to the Father. He's been crucified and raised from the dead here, but he said not many days from now it's going to occur, that which John promised. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit actually occurred the first time in Acts chapter 2, but it's not mentioned specifically. We have to turn to Acts chapter 10, or I should say Acts chapter 11. Uh... Verses 14 through 16 to see how it occurred. Here, Peter, you got to get the drama of this. This is really humorous. Peter had been especially uh, worked upon by God to overcome his prejudice against Gentiles, and boy, they, as I said, they had a tremendous problem of prejudice then. If you think we've got a problem of prejudice in the United States today, with the black and white issue, and it's regrettable, it's terrible, but we can take heart in this, that they had a problem in the early church too. And it was greater than anything we know because it had been established over centuries of misinterpretation of the Scripture by the Jews. They thought that Gentiles were lower than dogs and that they had no souls worth saving. And so even Peter, now when this happened, Peter was a Christian about ten years, or at least ten years, and he was an apostle at least seven years, seven to eight years. 
And all of this time, he still had this prejudice against Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 10, God had to appear to him and to break down that prejudice with a vision. And God ordered him to go and speak to a group of Gentiles at a Roman army captain's house, a centurion. It's interesting that the first three Gentiles reported as being saved in the Gospels and the book of Acts were all soldiers, which indicates God doesn't hate soldiers. He likes them. And so here we have a centurion to whom Peter was sent, and uh, Peter was preaching this great message in Acts chapter 10. In verse 43, uh, he made the mistake, I say that humorously, uh, he made the mistake of telling the, the essential facts of the gospel. Apparently he was going to preach about an hour-long sermon, but in about the first 15 minutes of the introduction, he, he mentioned the basic facts of the gospel. And it says, while he was still preaching, the people believed, and the evidence that they had believed was manifest all over the place. And uh, they interrupted his message because they believed at the beginning. And so, because of this, Peter was called on the carpet. You see, the leadership of the first century church had all this prejudice in it, and they actually bawled Peter out for going and speaking to Gentiles. And so he had to give an official report of why he did it. So that's what we're reading in Acts chapter 11, the official report. And he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved in all your household. And as I began to speak, Peter said, verse 15 of Acts 11, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Now, at, uh, us at the beginning refers to Acts chapter 2. Now, what did Peter make of this? He said, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how that he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he says that the baptism of the Holy Spirit took place in Acts chapter 2, and in a startling way it took place again in Acts chapter 10. But what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, a lot of people have confused the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the gift of speaking in tongues. Because it says in Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 44 through 46, that when these people had the Holy Spirit come upon them, they had the outer phenomena of speaking in heretofore unknown languages. Now, is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Or is it a necessary evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Categorically, no. Now, there were special manifestations of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts because of the prejudice issue. Because, you see, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see in a moment, is something that is, is not visible to the human eye. It's something which the Holy Spirit does at the moment of salvation in answer to our faith. He does it with every believer at the moment of salvation. But, 
you can't see the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and therefore that in these early days when they spread the gospel from the Jews first, and they had this outer experience to prove they had been baptized with the Spirit, it was the inaugural experience of the indwelling of the Spirit and the baptism. Then when they went to the Samaritans, who were half Jews and half Gentiles in Acts 8, apparently the phenomena happened there. And again, it proved that God had welcomed these people that the Jews had formerly thought of as dogs. And then in Acts chapter 10, when there was another great problem of prejudice, it happened again. And so this was an outer phenomena to prove that something had happened which could not be seen with the human eye. And it had to be done because it says that there were all kinds of Jews present and they couldn't believe their eyes that God had received the Gentiles also into these New Testament ministries of the Spirit. So we had Operation Integration. And uh, you don't find this phenomena occurring outwardly again as a result of being baptized with the Spirit except in one place, and that's in Acts chapter 19, where you had some Old Testament believers, that is, people who had believed in Christ before the Holy Spirit was given. And so there was this, this period of uh, one generation where you had at the same time on earth living believers of the New Testament and living believers of the Old Testament, and they had to be integrated into the New Testament ministries as the New Testament believers would find them flung around. So in Acts chapter 19, you find that these people were intercepted all around the world because they were converts of John the Baptist. And so when, I, when Paul would find some believers that apparently weren't clued in, he would give them a test in pneumatology. That is, he would ask them about the Holy Spirit. And that's what he did in Acts 19. He said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, we don't know that there is a Holy Spirit. And that, that answered his question. So then he preached to them about the New Testament message, and he brought the Holy Spirit upon them by laying hands on them. Now that's the way they were integrated into these New Testament ministries. After the first century, this was never repeated. Because now we're going to look at the norm after this operation of integration and uh, integration, the norm is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, where we have a definition of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is and how identification with Christ starts. First Corinthians chapter 12, Verses 12 through 14, page 293. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now what's the subject? What are we talking about here? The body of Christ. And what is the body of Christ? It's the one true church. Who's in, the, who's in the one true church? Every believer, you're right. Now this means uh, uh, whether the guy is a, is a hot and tot, a Laplander, 
or Russian, or whether the man is a Methodist, a Baptist, or Episcopalian, or Catholic, or Pentecostal, or what? If they have personally believed in Christ, excuse me, then where are they? They're in Christ. Can anyone be a believer, a true believer, and not be in Christ? No. Over 165 times in the New Testament, it says that the believer is in Christ. And everything that Christ gives us at the moment of salvation is related to being in Christ. You have it because of your union with Christ. This is the most central truth of the Scripture. You can't even begin to enter into what Paul is talking about unless you understand what it means to be in Christ. Everything he talks about is related to this union with Christ. In Christ means to be in a union which is so fantastic and so personal that you're said to be in Ephesians 5.30, members of his body, of his flesh, and of, your, of his bone. And it says that earthly marriage is an earthly illustration of the heavenly reality of being in union with Christ. In other words, when people get married and the two become one flesh, that is an earthly illustration of the greater reality of union with Christ. The oneness that is affected by union with Christ is more real than any other fact in the universe, according to what the Scripture says. Right now, you're seated here at Arrowhead Springs in a chair, but at the same time, you're seated in the heavenlies in Christ. You have two residences at any moment. And you're just as actually in, in the presence of God at the right hand of the Father as you are sitting here. Do you realize that? Very few Christians do. But this is why I can stand in front of an audience that's hostile and speak with boldness or why anyone can, because I know that as I'm standing there, I'm also seated at the right hand of the Father, and all the power of the universe is available to me if I just claim it by faith. It's mine, whether I claim it or not, but I don't experience it unless I claim it. Well, this is part of the profundity of this union. And it says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And then he explains in verse 13 how we get into Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. Now here is an explanation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, definition, is the Holy Spirit taking the believer at the moment of salvation and baptizing him into the body of Christ. Now, the word baptism, baptizo, was never translated into English. Baptism is not a translation, it's a transliteration. If we were to translate the meaning of baptism as it's used in the New Testament, 
it would be identification. It's a means of totally identifying one thing with another. And that is what is meant here. By one spirit, and that's God the Holy Spirit, who's the subject of the whole context of chapter 12, talking about him doing everything sovereignly as he wills in verse 11. The Holy Spirit, by him, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. In other words, it's through the Holy Spirit, and you can look at this diagram for a minute. Through the Holy Spirit, this represents the moment of salvation here at the cross. At the instant that any believer believes in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes him and puts him into Christ. So that, that at that instant, he becomes a very part of the body of Christ, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And it is at that instant that at least 34 things are given to you because of this union that can never be taken away. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the righteousness of Christ becomes yours. You're clothed with his righteousness. God, from that point on, from his point of view, sees you as the righteousness of Christ. At that moment, you're accepted unconditionally in the Beloved, Ephesians 1, 6. You are accepted in the Beloved, and that's a title of Christ, the Beloved. In that moment... 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, Christ is made to us something we aren't by nature. It's a judicial act of God. Christ is made to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Those things are immediately given to us because we're in Christ. We're all put into this body. Now look at verse 13 again. It says, We were all baptized. I want to put emphasis on all. How many is all? I'm asking ridiculous questions because people get ridiculous when they read the Bible. They just don't take it literally. And God says what he means. Now what kind of people is he talking to here? The Corinthians. What were they like? Anyone know anything about the Corinthians? They were gross. That's right. He's talking to people who got drunk at the communion service. He's talking to men who had been having relationships with the prostitutes over at the temple of Aphrodite. He's talking to people who were arguing among themselves. He's talking to people who were all wet about the gift of the speaking in tongues. We have that problem today as we did then. There were some of these people who said that you couldn't be saved unless you spoke in tongues. And verse 3 shows that that's a lie. 
because he says that no man can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if a man can call Jesus Lord, it's, not, it's the evidence that he has the Holy Spirit living in him. If he can recognize Jesus as God is the idea. That's the only way you can do it is if you have the Holy Spirit in you. You can't avow personally that Jesus is God except by the Holy Spirit. So he shows that's not that salvation is not dependent on speaking in tongues. And then in the rest of chapter 12 and chapter 13 and chapter 14, he answers another problem that these carnal Christians had raised, and that is, uh, can you be filled with the Spirit without having the sign of speaking in tongues? And he goes on to show that it has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. That the filling of the Spirit comes by faith, moment-by-moment moment faith, not by some emotional experience. And in the midst of all of this, he shows that the most important thing is to be in the body. And everyone's in the body because at the moment of salvation, the most foundational work of salvation is to be put into union with Christ. And so he shows that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that. And it says that in verse 13, we are made to drink into the Holy Spirit. Now, this refers to another aspect of the Spirit's work, which occurs at the same moment. And that is, here I am, this is me, in time. That is, while I'm still on this earth. We'll put a dotted line across here, which represents the difference between things eternal and things temporal. At the moment that I am put into a permanent union with Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in me. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit also includes the indwelling of the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit taking up permanent residence in me. And we'll explain that in more detail later. So two things happen in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it happens to every believer at the moment of salvation. It has nothing to do with how great you are or how much you believe God or whether you earn it or not. You can't earn it. It happens instantly to all believers. You're put into Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, and Christ, of course, through the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in you. Now, I want to give you several verses on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 6. Verses 2 through 5. We don't have time to turn there, but you read it and we'll expound it later. Romans chapter 6, verses 2 through 5 say that we've all been baptized into Christ and into his death and into his resurrection. There's not a drop of water in Romans chapter 6. It's talking about something that only the baptism of the Holy Spirit could affect. Water baptism is an outward testimony that you believe God has baptized you with the Holy Spirit. That's its significance. Because when you are baptized with water, and every believer should be, by the way, 
When you're baptized with water, you are telling the world, you're testifying to your faith that you believe that at the moment you received Christ, you were put into union with Christ, and therefore that you actually died with Christ. In the mind of God, you died with Christ. You actually were raised from the dead with Christ, and you actually were taken then with Christ and enthroned at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians 2.6. That's already true of every believer. And that's what you're saying when you're being baptized with water. Now, very few people realize that's what they're saying when they were baptized with water because they, they don't have it explained to them. But that's its, that's its real significance. It's a symbol, a sign of the faith that you have been put into Christ. Now, another verse is Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. page 320, where it says, For you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This shows that there's no such thing as the universal fatherhood of God, nor the universal brotherhood of man. God is the Father only of those who believe in Christ. He's the creator of all men, but he's not the father of all men. I said before, John 8, 44 says that Satan is the father of the unbeliever. All right, and verse 27 is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's one thing that I want to bring out particularly, and that is that this great word, Baptizo, which is B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, which is transliterated, baptized. They just brought it letter for letter from the Greek over without translating it. This word, as it's used in connection with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is always in the aorist tense in the original Greek, which means it's something that happens at a point of time once and for all. Not repeated. Doesn't have to be repeated. Now, another thing is it's always in the passive voice. Now, you grammarians, what does it mean? What's the passive voice mean? Huh? What's that? Right. The subject receives the action. The subject receives the action. Now, this is the voice of grace. That means the subject receives something. He doesn't do anything. So you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the action of Christ and the Holy Spirit, not you. And so it says that the, one of the things that this does is that it, you clothe yourself with Christ himself when you be, are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this is what I was talking about when I said everything that's true of Christ becomes true of you. You are clothed with his righteousness. His acceptance before God becomes your acceptance. If you're ever tempted to think that God doesn't love you anymore or doesn't accept you because you've failed him, remember, can Christ be rejected? Neither can you. Because you are Christ as far as God is concerned. All right, another verse. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses uh, 
3 through 6, where it's talking about the seven unities of the Christian faith. It says, Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All right? Now, in this context, the one baptism has to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's only one baptism that is common to every believer, and that's because God does it and we can't louse it up. Water baptism has never united Christians, it's divided them. There's been more argument about that than anything else. But there's one baptism that is a unity and unifies Christians because it puts them into one body, and that's what is meant here. All right, another passage, Colossians chapter 2, page 341. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. This is called the action of God that's without hands in verse 11. It's talking, see, the circumcision of the Christian today, which means the putting off of the deeds of the flesh, is accomplished today by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is done without hands. That is, it's something God does. And the effect of it on us is faith in the working of God, verse 13. All right, another passage, uh, 1 Peter. Page uh, 398, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Who once, were bapt, uh, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. Now, the whatever is said in verse 21 is said to correspond exactly to what happens in verse 20. Now, that's the clue. Now, the illustration of whatever this baptism is, is given in verse 20 about Noah and the ark. Now, we'll say that this is the ark. All right, now it says in verse 20, 
during the construction of the ark in which, what does in which refer to? The ark. In which few, that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. Now what saved the people, the ark or the water? The ark, that's right. The water, the people that got wet were the non-Christians. Get the point? And they were wiped out. But the people who were saved were the ark, and that ark is a type of Christ. Now, when it talks about, it says, now corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And that means we're baptized into the ark, which is Christ. So it's got to be talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, since that's the only one that puts you into Christ. So it's a baptism of the Holy Spirit here, which puts you into Christ, and when you're in Christ, you're safe. But to show you the true nature of I don't know whether you've been... Has Dave taken you through all this? I forgot about that. Dave Sunday taking you through these verses. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll close with this for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses uh, 1 and 2. I want you to see the true meaning of the word baptizo or baptizo, baptize. Here is one of those seven different baptisms that the Bible talks about. We've been talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the baptism of Moses. You didn't know there was one of those, did you? Let's read. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our Father were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, I want you to go back and read tonight Exodus chapters, the last part of 13 and chapter 14, and see if what I say is not true. In fact, you might throw 15 in too, because I think they commemorate it there. Who got wet at the Red Sea? About four or five times it says the Israelites walked through the Red Sea dry shod. But the Egyptians got wet. Now the point I'm making here is that baptism does not have to be affected by water. Some people think that's the only way that baptism can occur. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not affected by water, but by the Holy Spirit who totally identifies you, immerses you into Christ, which totally identifies you with him. In the same way, when the people, you see, only one person believed the promises of God at the, at the bank of the Red Sea, that is the, uh, the west bank of the Red Sea. Everybody believed it when they got to the east bank. But when all of the armies of, of uh, Egypt were closing in the, and the uh, Israelites were hopelessly trapped, there was only one man that looked at that mess and believed God, and that was Moses. 
And so God says, all right, Moses, use your authority. Speak to the Red Sea and it will part. And so Moses spoke to the Red Sea and it parted, and he stepped down into the Red Sea and, and the people followed him. Now when they did, they were baptized into Moses. That means they were totally identified with his faith, and therefore they were saved with Moses. Now that was the baptism of Moses, and it was not something that was accomplished with water. It was accomplished by faith. They were baptized or identified with Moses' faith, and as they followed him, they were saved. Now, the Egyptians were wiped out when they tried to follow by water. So this baptism has nothing to do with physical water. It has to do with being identified with someone so that you are one with them. The baptism of fire, Matthew 3.12 3, 11, and 12, is not affected with water. It's, it's affected with fire. Now, I've heard some people, I'm sure they're well-meaning, but boy, are they, if they only knew what they were saying. I heard in a meeting one time, brothers, everyone that wants to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, come down to the front. And I thought to myself, boy, you jackass. You know what the baptism of fire is? It's what's going to happen at the second advent of Christ when the unbelievers are going to be cast into the lake of fire. That's the explanation given by John the Baptist who first mentioned it in, in Matthew 3.12 where he talks about the, the former separating the wheat and the chaff and casting the chaff into the fire. And the, and the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew 3, 11, uh, or Matthew chapter 13 explains it completely, where God is going to separate the believers from the unbelievers and cast them into the fire. I don't want to be in that baptism. But it means it's, it's another dry baptism, though. It's going to be accomplished with fire. Then there's the, the baptism of suffering, Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus says that he would be baptized and that no one could partake of that. And then some guys said they could, and he said, all right, you will. So that, that was his total identification with suffering. All right, those are just a few. Shall we pray? Father, we pray that the main point will not be lost, and that is that the most wonderful reality in all the universe is that we are in union with the living Christ, that we're bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And though this is a mystery according to Ephesians 5.32, nevertheless, it's, it's a fact. We know that what you say about us is the most true thing about us. So as we enter into this teaching, may each one's mind be cleared of any restraint of Satan that we might enter into all that you have for us that above all we might possess and use the authority that you've committed to the believer. In Jesus' name, amen. Provable by human effort. It's completely based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has once and for all blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ 
Jesus. So we see the basis of, of receiving all spiritual blessings, which every believer has right now, is being in Christ. So you can't improve on every spiritual blessing. You've already got it. The thing is not to try to earn them or try to gain more spiritual blessings, but to discover what you've already got and claim them. The Christian life is a marvel, or designed to be a marvel, of discovering what God already has given you and counting it true, and then the Holy Spirit makes it real in your experience. So human merit can't improve it at all. Third characteristic, our union with Christ is not based on experience. But experience is based on it, or should be. In other words, whether I know it or not, I am at this moment seated at the right hand of the Father in Jesus Christ. I am as much a part of Christ as God can make me. Now, whether I know or believe that or not doesn't make any difference. It's still a fact. I never will forget the first time that I uh, got to the West Coast. I wanted to see the Pacific Ocean and uh, got to the banks of Pacific Palisades, and it was foggy. And I couldn't see the Pacific Ocean, yet my wife said it was there. Now, the fact that I couldn't see it didn't stop it from being there. It was there whether I saw it or not. And some people have a lot of fog over their minds about what they are in Christ, but they're still in Christ, and everything that God had to give them has already been given, and whether they ever come to know it or not, it's still theirs. Every person is a spiritual billionaire. But most people live like spiritual paupers. It's about like the true story of this guy who uh, came to America from England. He became a bum. For many years he lived like a bum, and uh, he had a, a very wealthy uh, uncle who died. He was the sole heir, but he didn't know anything about it. And for years, Scotland Yard or I should say, I don't know if it's Scotland Yard, but special investigators hired by the executor of the estate traced this man. They traced him from one flop house to another. They finally found him sleeping in a 50-cent-a-night cot in uh, a bum's refuge and informed him that now he was a millionaire. Now, for years he had been a millionaire, but he didn't discover it until they finally caught up with him and told him what he was. And every one of us is spiritual millionaires, or are spiritual millionaires. And the Holy Spirit must reveal to us from the Scripture what, we've, what we are. The Christian life is a matter of becoming what you've already been made. It is becoming in your experience what you've already been made as far as God is concerned. What God thinks about you is the most true thing about you. You've got to get used to that idea. There's nothing more true about you than what God says is true about you. 
Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, shows that our experience must be based on the knowledge of our union with Christ and what we have in Christ, and not vice versa. All right, our union with Christ is eternal. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Turn there, please. Page 266. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Now let me ask you a question. Are you a created thing? Yes, you are. Nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God for you is based on your being in Christ. You are accepted in the Beloved. The Beloved is Christ, Ephesians 1, 6. And nothing can separate you from Christ. The union that is formed the instant you believe in Christ is eternal. Now look at all of the things that Paul takes up. He takes up actually every possibility of what could sever you from your union with Christ. First he says neither death nor life. Now this means that physical death cannot separate you from Christ. Nor life. What does life mean? What do you think it means? What life could separate you from Christ? What would be a possibility? Huh? Well, yeah, a gross life. In other words, what he's talking about here is the life that you have from the time you receive Christ until the time you check out of this life. Now, he says nothing in your life after you receive Christ can separate you from Christ. So he takes up, he says physical death can't do it. Staying on the earth can't do it. You can't do something in this life after you accept Christ that can sever you from Christ. Nor angels. Now, these angels means the good guys, God's angels. Nor principalities. Those are the demons. This is the word that's always used of fallen angels. Satan and all of his horde can't sever you from Christ. Nor things present. That means anything in this life nor things to come, anything in the next life, nor powers. This is another order of demons. It's always used of fallen angels. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. And you are a created thing. You can't even remove yourself from Christ. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So it is an eternal union. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through uh, 18 also demonstrates this. We don't have time to look at it, but you look at it later. The basis of Paul exhorting some men who were committing sexual immorality with prostitutes to stop it was that they were the members of Christ. And he says, you're taking your body, which is the member of Christ, 
and you're joining it to a prostitute because sexual intercourse makes two people one. And so he says the enormity of the sin you're committing is that you're taking the very flesh of Christ and you're joining it to a prostitute because you are Christ and you're doing that with a prostitute. And he says, now, don't you think you ought to stop it? And he says, not only that, but yet this hand, what I do with this hand is subjecting Christ to it because this hand is a part of Christ. But he says also your, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So everything you do, the Holy Spirit is on the scene. And he says this is why people should live depending on the Holy Spirit so that they live holy lives. Because you can't do anything. Now, he didn't say stop the immorality or you'll be severed from Christ. He said stop it because you're so a part of Christ that you subject Christ to what you're doing. That's part of being in union with Christ. Five, it's a mystical but actual organic union with the person of Christ himself. Ephesians 5, 29 through 32. Turn there, please. This is part of my wedding ceremony, by the way. Ephesians 5. Verses 29 through 32. At verse 28 it says, So husband ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Page 331. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body, and it should be of his flesh and of his bone. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, it seems like you've got two subjects here that are unrelated. It seems like Paul has skipped a, a cog in his thinking on first glance. Because on the one hand, the, sub, the subject of the context is marriage, making two people one. On the other hand, he brings in Christ in the church and the fact that the, each believer is a member of Christ's body, his flesh, and his bones. Then he says, this mystery is great, but I speak with reference to Christ and the church. Now, these things aren't unrelated at all because, you see, he's showing that in the original intention, marriage was designed to be an earthly illustration of the greater heavenly union of the believer's union with Christ. Marriage does make two people one in the eyes of God, and it illustrates the greater oneness that occurs when a person receives Christ. All right, one of the greatest things accomplished by, the, by our union with Christ is seen in Romans chapter 6, and I'm not going to exposit this today. We will next week when we start all week long on the impact of the work of Christ on the cross on living the Christian life. So I'll take up what it means to be dead with Christ. But uh, Romans chapter 6 is a chapter I want you to study to see 
the effect of being put to death with Christ. Romans 6, Galatians 2.20. Because we are totally identified with Christ, his death became my death. And this is the way that God justifies me for what I am. In other words, most of what Christ did on the cross was what we call substitutionary work. In other words, he died in my place as a substitute for the, uh, taking the penalty for the evil deeds that I have done in thought, word, and deed. So Christ took the penalty as a substitute for what I have done. Every, every thought, every word, every deed that would fall short of the standard of God. And as a substitute, Christ purchased my salvation. But there is still one other thing that was necessary to be done in order to set God free to work in my life while I'm here on earth. God, before he could, without restraint, dwell in me, in the person of the Holy Spirit, and begin to deal with my old nature, and begin to, to uh, conquer that nature, and begin to produce in me a holy life himself, had to first deal with what I am. So, not only did Christ have to die as a substitute for the things I do, but God had to identify me with Christ so that I actually die with him for what I am. And in this way, Romans 6 shows that God set himself free to forgive me completely for what I am. And of course, this is the most important thing because I do what I do because I am what I am. And so Romans chapter 6 will show us how God set himself perfectly free to work in the life of me, the sinner. Even though I still have a sinful nature after I'm born into the family of God, God is not restrained by that nature. He doesn't have to judge me because of its constant temptation, but he is now free to deal with it. In the same way that if you live here in, in San Bernardino, if you die, the laws of San Bernardino no longer have jurisdiction over you. The law requires either you keep it, God's law, requires either you keep it perfectly or you die. You couldn't keep it perfectly, so God put you in Christ and you died. So the maximum penalty of the law has been executed actually on you in the mind of God. It's a judicial act with God. So that now everything the law had against you has been executed. But you've been raised into a new life in the life of Christ. And now God is, does not have to judge you anymore for what you are. And he is now free to work in you. Romans chapter 6 actually tells more about what God set himself free to do than what he set you free from. It shows how that God is now legally free to work without restraint upon your old nature. We'll talk about that more next week. So, in your death with Christ, the first most important thing is, 
Because you died with Christ, you were set free from the jurisdiction of God's holy law and the principle of law. That is any system of trying to come to God by human merit. Romans 6.14 and Romans 7.1 through 25. All right, you were also justified from the penalty for having an old sin nature. Romans 6, 7, and Romans 8, 1. You are set free from slavery to the old sin nature because judicially you have died to its power. It no longer has the right to rule over you. We'll go into that next week, too. But one of the great effects of the death of Christ and your death with him was that it set you free from Satan's authority, and that's the subject of today. Because you died with Christ, Satan no longer has any authority over you whatsoever. He no longer can use the legal gimmick of your his because of sin. Because your great, 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 great grandfather and mine, Adam, sold us out to Satan. And so Acts 26, 18 tells us this. And I want us to turn there for a minute. Acts 26, 18. Page 249. Here the Apostle Paul is telling some of the things that he was called by Christ to do. And so he says to open their eyes, that is the eyes of the unbeliever, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now the word dominion in the original Greek is exousios, which means authority. And you see, as we talked about in the first day of this class about the angelic conflict, the first man had the legal power of attorney over himself and over all of those who would be born to him and over the earth itself. Now, when Satan got Adam to sin, and to follow him, what Adam did was sell himself into slavery to Satan and give Satan authority over him and over all those who would be born as his descendants. And so this is why it says here that we have to be taken out of the authority of Satan. We have to be ransomed from the slave market of sin under the rulership of the slave master Satan and 
The moment you accept Christ, God sees you in his mind as being totally identified with Christ, and he sees you as having died with Christ on the cross, and therefore the full penalty of his law against sin has already been executed on you, and immediately you are given the resurrection of Christ so that now though you live, legally you're dead. Legally, as far as the claim of sin on you is concerned, it's already been executed. The life you now live, there is no legal claim on it. And Satan has absolutely no right to rule over you anymore. And it's important that we understand this because it's only there that we begin to see the authority that we have and to exercise it. Now, when... When uh, Adam sold, sold out himself and his descendants and the world to Satan, Satan took over the world, and he's called the God of this world and the ruler of this world. And we're told by the word cosmos, like in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that Satan has control over all of the kingdoms of the earth, that he is the one who has an ordered system. The word cosmos means an orderly system. And the Bible tells us that Satan has organized the world system, that is the environment in which we live, under his control so that it's under his absolute dominion, except in places where there are believers who exercise an influence. And so it says in Colossians chapter 1 that when a person is joined to Christ, the moment of salvation, it says that Christ delivers us from the domain of darkness or the authority of darkness, which is Satan's kingdom, and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. But we have to realize that this world, this world system, for the most part, in which we live, is under the control of Satan. Now, this doesn't mean it's always as gross as it can be, but it means that the world itself is founded on a different philosophy of life. It's founded on selfishness, greed, and violence. And above all, it's founded on humanism. It's founded on man being the master of his own fate, and it's founded on what man can do. It's man-centered, the whole philosophy of the world. However, God's kingdom is founded on dependence upon the Holy Spirit and selflessness, not self-centeredness, but selflessness. And God's philosophy of life must be centered in God. And so therefore, there are two diametric world, diametrically opposed worldviews, and that's why it says in James that friendship with the world is enmity against God, and this is aimed at the Christian. And the environment around you is alien, hostile territory. And it's about time that Christians realize that. 
And about time we realize where the real source of opposition comes from to the gospel. Now, when we share Christ with someone, we have to realize that the greatest problem is not this man's conscious level of thought. The greatest problem is that Satan blinds the minds of those who believe not. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. What I want you to see today is that there is a great unseen warfare going on around us all the time. We are at war. And as far as Satan is concerned, every believer is an enemy agent on his territory. That's why the scripture says that the believer is an alien and a stranger on earth. Your citizenship is not of the earth, but of heaven, Philippians 3.21 and 3.20. But we also have to remember, greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. You don't have to be afraid. But there is this great spiritual warfare that's going on on the earth, and only the believer who realizes it is the one who begins to assume power and authority, which is his. Now, the reason we have this power and authority is because not only have we been raised into a new life with Christ, but we've been raised up to sit on his throne. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verses 6 and 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, page 326. Let's begin with verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together, literally in Christ, not with Christ. Because when we were put into Christ and joined to him, his life became our life. Just like grafting a limb into a tree, his life became our life. And it says... By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now notice the tense of those verbs. In the English, they're past tense. In the Greek, they're aorist tense, which means he raised us up at the point we believe once and for all he seated us at the same moment, once and for all, with Christ in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. In other words, our union with Christ has made us, at this moment, creatures of eternity. And at the moment I accepted Christ, I was put into Christ. And that's the most real fact about me right now is that I am seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. And so are you. You are seated here in this auditorium physically, but in a more real sense, you are also at the same time seated at the right hand of the Father in Jesus Christ. 
And in a sense, you can look down at what's going on around you and not really be affected by it if you see your position in Christ. And these are part of the legal possessions that you have in Christ. These are things that God has done absolutely by a, by a declaration, a judicial declaration, and these are things which are true of you and related to e eternity. These are eternal facts, and they're not affected by anything that happens here in time. However, what is true of you in eternity now does affect what happens to your living of the life here because at the same moment that you were put into Christ, at the moment of salvation, Christ, through the Holy Spirit, came to dwell in you. And Christ wants to sit upon the throne of your life all times. The Holy Spirit in your life is the one who makes it possible for Christ to sit upon the throne of your life. Now, the important thing that God wants us to do is to begin to see what we already are in Christ and by faith to count it true. As the Holy Spirit reveals in the Scripture what we have in Christ to begin to simply say, I believe this, Lord, I count it true. That's what it means to reckon. It's what I call the reckoning that counts, according to a book that I read. And then the, it's the place of the Holy Spirit to make real what you see in the Scripture and count as true. So that your experience begins to measure up to what you are. You begin to count true of yourself what is already true in the mind of God, and the Holy Spirit begins to make you experience it. Now, the problem is when unbelief sets in, there's a smog cloud that gets between what you are in Christ and what you are here. The only thing that can stop this is simply for you to stop believing what God says, to start going by your emotions and by your feelings instead of what God says. But as you simply count through what is true of you, these things become true. Now, a throne is a place to rule. And that's what this context is talking about. Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18 as he builds up to this passage that we're enthroned with Christ. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, these are all wonderful things. He wants us to know the hope of our calling, which is that we have eternal life, that Christ is coming to take us to be kings and priests with him forever, that those who have been faithful in this life, for every little thing you're faithful, you're going to get infinite rewards for them. That's part of the hope of our calling. And the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, that you know that you're a co-heir with Christ, Ephesians 1.18, 
And the third thing is the most important, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then he goes on to show that the power that's available to those who believe is the same power that was operative in raising Christ from the dead, and the scripture says that was the greatest demonstration of omnipotence. It took more power to raise Christ from the dead than any other thing God has ever done. It took more power to raise Christ from the dead than to create the universe. Because sin had to be paid for, and the Satan and all of his legions of angels were trying to hold Christ in, in the grave. And if God's power was operative to break all of those things and to raise him from the dead. And he says that the same power which raised him from the dead is now available to those who believe and we are seated with Christ on his thrones, with, on his throne with his authority. Every believer. Now this is what I was talking about when I said yesterday that this is the thing that Satan will do anything to keep you from understanding. Anything. Authority means the right to use the power of someone greater than you. Authority means the right to use great power committed to you. And our greatest obstacles in this world come from Satan working behind the scenes in this world system which he has set up and opposing us in the spiritual forces of the minds of men and so forth, and yet we have authority to bind Satan, and we have authority to release men from his blinding effect. We have authority to remove obstacles from us that are set up to block the spread of the gospel and to build people in the faith, and it comes to those who believe, in verse 19 it says, What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? We who are seated at the right hand of power in Jesus Christ. Now let me give you an illustration of what I mean by all of this. In Mexico City last January, I was talking to an old warrior of the faith who's probably a man who understands more about this than any man I know alive, Dr. Hegel, Mexico City. And I was talking to Dr. Hegel about this truth, and of course you don't realize how much we need this truth until you go to a heathen land where the gospel is not being openly preached and the powers of Satan are really visible and manifest where you've seen people demon-possessed running through the streets and things like that. Well, go to, go to South America sometime. Everybody realizes there's such a thing as demon possession there. They've seen it. They've seen the power of Satan really visible and operative. And Dr. Hegel's been down there for some 40 years in combat. He's been responsible for tens of thousands coming to Christ down there. But he was telling me that the illustration of the believer's power, the authority that is committed to us, was really illustrated to him 
when he was downtown in Mexico City a few years ago. You see, in Mexico City, they've got these wide boulevards, Reforma, the, the, the street of the Reforma is uh, the main street, and it's real wide, and it's got this esplanade in between, and it's got these uh, traffic circles called Glorietta's. Now, downtown, they have these uh, little pedestals in the middle of the neutral ground, the middle of the, esp uh, of the street, where the traffic policeman stands. Now, that pedestal is the place of authority. Because when that traffic officer stands up on that pedestal and he blows his whistle and holds up his horn, boy, you better stop. And uh, you can watch this. It's interesting. Here are all these powerful automobiles running around anywhere from two to 300 horsepower engines. Now, that one traffic officer standing on that pedestal does not have the power in himself to stop one of those automobiles. But yet it's an interesting thing. When he stands on that pedestal, the moment he blows his whistle and holds up his hand, all those cars stop. Now, Dr. Eagle was talking about this incident he saw. There were uh, several small boys who were out on this intersection, and they were standing there watching this traffic officer. They were about 12, 12 years old. And one of them was intently watching the officer, and so Dr. Hegel stood to watch. And uh, for some reason, uh, there was a problem out in the traffic, and this uh, traffic officer had to step down off the pedestal and go out and talk to a taxi driver. Well, while he was out there talking, and all these cars racing back and forth, and you have to be in Mexico to appreciate that, it looks like everybody's going every which way. Well, this little boy stood up on the pedestal, and imitated the traffic officer. He held his hand up like this, and cars slammed on their brakes everywhere. You see, they recognized that he was standing in the place of authority. And those cars didn't stop because of the innate power of the little boy, but because all of the power of Mexico stood behind him. And that's what you call authority. That's the reason a traffic officer can stop all of those automobiles as they're racing back and forth, not because they're afraid of him personally, but because they're afraid of the power that stands behind him, all of the power of Mexico. And that's why the Scripture says that we have authority to bind the influence of Satan. We have been enthroned with Christ, and those who believe have his, the surpassing greatness of his power available to their faith. And within the plan and will of God, I know that I have power to move. And Satan doesn't, he's not afraid of me or any Christian, because he has tremendous power. But he's scared to death of the Christian who knows that in the name of Jesus Christ, by just simply counting true what God says is true, he can bind the power of Satan. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 6, turn over there for a minute. See, God wants you to learn to sit 
with him in Christ. Here you are. This is where he wants the believer to be. The believer seated on the throne with Christ, seeing himself as a co-ruler with Christ, able with authority to affect God's will. And he's able to know what God's will is because the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to show us what God's will is. The Holy Spirit reveals the way we're to go. On the inside of us, we have the mind of Christ. He that is spiritual has the mind of Christ, which is always commensurate with the Word of God. Now, he says in Ephesians 6.10, he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This shows that the devil is constantly scheming. And uh, I'll tell you, some of you, I think, in this group, how many of you are planning on coming on staff? Boy. Wow, I didn't know that. Well, let me give you a few words of wisdom. <laughs> you are coming from the minor leagues into the big leagues as far as Satan is concerned. And you haven't known the subtleties of Satan as you are going to know them. Already, I'm sure, he's at work. But I know that the more I advance in the place of, of uh, privilege with God, the harder I see Satan at work against my life. So... The ones that are really stupid are the ones who don't even think Satan exists. His power is absolute in your life because it's undetected. And you can count on Satan to throw all kinds of crazy ideas in your head. He especially works on saying, oh, you don't believe that garbage about Satan. Ah, that went out with Dante. And what's all this jazz about Spooks, you know. I mean, after all, in this age of the 20th century and all of our sophistication, who believes in that? How many of you have that going through your mind? I won't ask you to show your hand. But you see, the fact that that is is the very evidence that Satan's at work on you right now. These schemes. I remember when I first really understood my call to go into the ministry. Up until that time, I'd enjoyed a sort of a lackadaisical life, you know, no real uh, attacks from Satan, no real vicious temptations. The very week that the Lord made it clear that I was to go into the ministry, you know what happened? A beautiful young lady called me and said she had some spiritual problems and asked if I would come over, and she propositioned me to go to bed with her. Now, that had never happened when I was an unbeliever, darn it. But, uh, <laughs> I just want you to know I'm human. But... Right away, I recognized the source of it, and I got out of there fast. I don't blame the young lady. She was 
out of it. I don't, I don't mean that the way you think I did. I meant I did not blame the young lady because she, she was under the power of Satan. And later she found out that that was true. But you see, if you're not walking by faith, look out. Look out. You know, one of the most dangerous things is for a guy to go into combat and to not really know he's in combat. Now, this is what happens over in Vietnam all the time. You know, these guys get over there from the States and they don't realize they're at war. And they don't use their armor. They don't use their minds, the things they've been trained to do. And the most dangerous time is when they first get there. And the most dangerous time for you is right now. You're thinking about going into the big leagues. And so it says in Ephesians to put on the full armor of God. And the full armor of God or all of the things he's provided for us to realize that power, authority, is what I have because of my union with Christ. And as I see myself enthroned with Christ, I know that I can simply in prayer in the name of Jesus Christ bind Satan's influence over my life and just have an attitude of faith against him in the name of Christ. The name of Christ represents all of his authority and power. And it's awesome to know the power that is available to the, to the weakest believer. He just possesses it, claims it. And as we possess this, we can see the, the power of Satan's step back. But right now, I believe that prophetically we're in the last days and we're seeing more and more satanic power hit the earth. And you can look for it to increase every day. Well, I see evidence of it increasing. The time has come for Christians to really know. It says in verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies, in heavenly places. Now, these words which talk about the demonic armies under the control of Satan are military terms. It shows that he's got five-star generals, colonels, captains, lieutenants, and everything under his control. In other words, the thing here is that he's got a highly organized army constantly at work against the powers of God. It says, Therefore take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, stand firm. Now the scripture says, Resist Satan, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. But don't you try to resist him yourself. In the name of Christ, you resist him. 1 Peter 5, 7 through 9 says, your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith. Seeing yourself as in Christ, having Christ's authority. Well, the scripture says 
We have this authority. And you know, in the book of Acts, you find people using that authority. In the name of Jesus Christ, they would command things to get out of the way. And that authority is bound up in your words as long as you are walking by faith and depending on the Holy Spirit to reveal the way. I'll just give you one illustration of how this works. During the convention at UCLA on Thursday of the week where we had more than, more than 700 people witnessing there all week, we had a meeting on Thursday night where we had the whole uh, cafeteria and the student union rented for a follow-up meeting, and everyone who had made a decision that week was invited to come to an informal coffee and to learn what had happened to them. So we had the place packed out, and it was one of the most exciting meetings I've ever been in. But when we were just getting going, first of all, I saw a rabbi come in. There were several Jewish people that had uh, responded to Christ that week and were there, and he was upset about that. And secondly, here came in a bunch of people. I, know two of, I knew two of them to be communists. They were not students. They were men who hung around the campus all the time. And he came in with a bunch of other bearded guys that had all been drinking, and uh, that's not the worst. That's not the part that bothered me. But uh, some of the guys sneaked over to listen to what they were saying. And uh, they were whispering, and this guy overheard them. And they said that they had come there. They were holding up the, the front page of the Daily Bruin, which is the campus newspaper. They're holding up the front page. They had photographers outside. What they were going to do was start a ruckus in there where, and make us throw them out. And they were going to get pictures of us throwing them out of this Christian meeting and put it on the front page of the Daily Bruin to really smear us and uh, to use all kinds of things that they had devised to discredit everything we were doing. Well, my wife and I heard about it. We got over in the corner, and we just prayed and said, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, we ask that you bind Satan. So we went over and talked to them, and we just told them, and said, look, we know what you're up to. And have you ever stopped to consider this? There are many people in here who haven't formulated a definite opinion about the Students for a Democratic Society and the Du Bois Club, which you represent. Now, you're going to discredit your whole cause by coming uninvited into a meeting that has been publicly announced for a certain purpose and, and causing a big disturbance. And you're going to lose people that might be in favor of what you're doing. And so the guys thought for a minute, and the leader went around and tapped all the guys on the shoulder who were scattered all around the room, and they quietly left, and that's the last we saw them. Now that was the Lord, because it could someone could have gotten hurt. Them. But any way you slice it, it would have been real bad. It would have discredited much of everything that had gone on there that week. And the Lord just 
stopped it right there. I remember being in a team meeting with John Flack uh, in the Beta House at UCLA, and I have never been in a meeting like that. The Episcopalian minister who was a, that uh, was in the Fiji House, and the Episcopalian minister who was a former Fiji from that chapter at UCLA was there, and uh, he was sitting next to John, and he had come in just to, uh, I think he was praying to Satan. Anyway, the guy is not a believer. I've talked to him personally, and he was trying everything he could to discredit and disrupt the meeting. So John stood up to give the gospel, and I tell you, unless you've been in a situation like this, you wouldn't understand what I'm saying, but there was almost a cloud over our minds. You could feel like a heavy pressure on that whole room. I got up to introduce John. I couldn't hardly think of his name. And I've been in many meetings. But there was the power of Satan over that place. And John got up to speak, and I knew he was under pressure because his hairline was down by his eyebrows, and he was sweating. And I knew he was having trouble getting started. So I know John said he prayed at that same time, and I bowed my head and prayed and asked the Lord to really bind Satan. And all of a sudden, he ripped loose and started coming out with his usual message, and most of that house responded at the end. But you know, this is a real spiritual warfare we're in, and you have the authority of Jesus Christ. The power of the universe is available to your faith. And this becomes more and more important as you begin to be used of the Lord and his word. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for being in union with Christ and his authority available to our faith. Pray that this might be realized by everyone, that your message might go forth and that disciples might be made for Jesus Christ. His name we pray. Amen. Please don't stray off.